Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on TWIP, guest host Scott Bourne returns with a vengeance, Ritz camera goes belly up, and an interview with What the Duck creator Aaron Johnson. All that and more on episode number 71 of This Week in Photography. All right, everybody, we're back for another episode of This Week in Photography. Today is a pretty special show because we have a sort of a regularly regular unregular guest <laughs> showing up uh, today. Uh, we've got Scott Bourne in the house. Hey, Scott. Hey, good to be back, Fred. And when you get old, you'll be irregular, too. <laughs> I'm irregular now. I don't know. Uh, and then this, look at it. Going downhill in the first 10 seconds of the show. Got to stop that. Uh, of course, in the house, we got Alex Lindsay as well. Hey, Alex. Hello, hello. We've got uh, Steve Simon coming from the East Coast. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. Good to, good to be here. And, of course, coming from Sweetbriar College, Aaron Mailer. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. No drama for you in, in Sweetbriar this week, I take it, right? It's been a pretty drama-free week. I'll probably regret saying that, but because there's still a few hours left. <laughs> Yeah, well, keep it going. And you're you're just just before we jump into everything else, you are uh, in the process of doing something very interesting with your hardware right now. What are you doing? <laughs> I actually, by sheer coincidence, this is not staged in any way. By sheer coincidence, I am in the act of getting groovy right now. U- UPS just dropped off my pile of one terabyte drives, Ooh. and I'm sticking them in the new Drobo that just arrived yesterday. Ooh. And I have a Drobo share arriving next week. So I'll have a lot to report on soon. Very cool. I'm not going to influence that in any way. I just want to hear how <laughs> it's going. Going well. And uh, we've also we're continuing with our linking contest. Uh, Scott, you want to do us the, the honor of of telling us what this linking contest is all about? Well, yeah, we we got a link contest. If you link to twipphoto.com from your blog or your podcast, we'll regularly check those links every three months and give prizes. And uh, the current prize uh, is a copy of Aperture. Hmm. And how much does that go for these days? One ninety nine. Look at that. Cool. And so that's what the the current one is. And if you don't have a blog, I get email from people going, "Well, I can't link to you. I don't have a blog." Well, Google will give you a free one. Excellent. Look at that. If they bought Blogger. You can use a free free Blogger account to link to us. And uh, that's all you got to do. And then you have to be 18 or over because that's the law. And you must be a U.S. resident because the lawyers say so. Well, you know, technically, Twitter is a blog, too. Could they just link to you from a Twitter feed? Actually, that doesn't show up in our referral log. So while we would love for them to do that, that won't help them win. Damn it. All right. Uh, so, Scott, I have a list of questions that I want to ask you. But I just want to I want to find out. We haven't talked to you for the last, what? Three weeks or so? It's been years. It feels like it's been forever. I just want to know what I want to know what you've been up to. What have you been up to for the last several days? Because you never you never stand still. You're always working on something. What have you been cooking up? Well, since I've been on the show last, Steve and I went to Yosemite National Park. Ooh. And we taught the Aperture Nature Workshop there, and Steve was bundled up like the Michelin Man. They have so much nature up there; it's amazing. (laughs) I hear that's where they make it. I think they do. 
And I want you to know Steve has progressed because when I took him to Grand Tetons, all he did was take pictures of the people taking pictures. But here, he actually pointed his camera at a couple of mountains and stuff. So yeah. that was, And there was an animal, too. I, I'm not sure what it – I think they call it a deer. Anyway, yeah. it, was, it was great. Just like New York. And, it, and uh, then after that, I led a workshop with my friend Arthur Morris in Florida for a glorious week of 75-degree uh, temperatures and sunny days. And we photographed over 100 species of birds. It was incredible. I loved it. And uh, we put a little thing on Twip Photo about that. And, and uh, now I got, you know, we're doing scottcritiques.com, which is doing pretty well. People seem to be enjoying that. And uh, while not directly interesting maybe to some photographers, certainly tangentially uh, it, it should be connected is I'm starting to work on stuff about storage because I have several friends, uh, and I hope nobody here has friends that have had this happen, but I have several friends that have lost their whole photographic careers to hard drive failures. And they just didn't have stuff backed up. And we've talked about that on the show before. And that's one of the reasons I got involved with Drobo. And now um, I'm doing a storage blog and podcast with uh, our pal Andy Anatko called My Digital Life. It's at mydl.me mydl.me and uh, this is the first announcement of that it, uh, nobody knows about it I'm just breaking it now and we're going to cover a lot of stuff that relates to photography we're going to talk specifically about photographic workflow backups and storage etc as well as other topics related to storage but that's that's something I'm doing and uh, anyway that's that's about it I'm going to PMA with uh, Alex this week uh, so that'll be fun we the Photo Marketing Association trade show biggest trade show in the United States uh, hoping that uh, Alex can make me look good on video, although so far he's never been able to do that. <laughs> so what, what do you, what's the mission out there? What are you going to be doing? Well, um, I'm going to be looking for cool stuff. Uh, unfortunately, they, the pre-PMA press releases have pretty much told us the big stuff that's coming, and so far I don't see anything that you know rocks my world. But I'm hoping to find stuff in, in, the, in what Alex and I at Macworld would call Tiny Town. They have their own version at PMA, the smaller booths. I'm hoping to find something that, that hasn't been pre-PMA released that might be cool. I'm thinking this year it's going to be a lot of software that we might – look for because hardware wise there don't appear to be any major new body announcements we're not sure what Nikon's going to do but everybody else has said no we got a you know a couple of interesting point and shoots out of the 22,912 that have been released in the last 10 days mm-hmm. um, you know there's a couple of lenses but you know so far I don't know um, we'll, we'll just play it by ear well there was a lot of news in the second half of 08 so yeah that's that's it see here's the problem we're coming off every every year that we do pma which is every year that comes off the back end of Photokina, which is every other year, the PMA is a little iffy because, you know, all the big news comes out at Photokina in October. And then on the heels of that, we got Photo East, or at least what used to be called Photo East in New York, followed up by PPA's conference, the Professional Photographers of America, followed up by just a few weeks ago, we had WPPI, the Wedding and Portrait Photographers International Conference in Vegas. Yep. And now we got PMA. Come on. I mean, it's like trade show overload. Yeah. It's kind of like having your birthday in January right after Christmas. <laughs> You never really get anything good. <laughs> uh, and then the, the particularly disturbing thing is, is that they've gone to this strategy now, the PR companies, of you know doing all these pre-PMA releases. And the pre-PMA releases are starting to come out like six months before PMA. Yeah. yeah. I would say it's good for us because it spreads it out. So we, we can talk about each one of them as they come out, which I'm sure is part of the, 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 their secret evil plan. Yeah. But in a down economy, though, I mean, how many of these trade shows can you – really expect to go to without not paying for your mortgage you know yeah well here's the issue i mean i 
I got these emails from PMA going, oh, prices slashed on the Hilton, 129 I mean, last mm. year it was 229 And um, they're, they're really, you know, I'm sure they're getting some impact, and they've been having a couple of the people drop out, similar to what we saw with Macworld. I don't know what's going to happen next year. We certainly hope that they all do well, but uh, I think that, you know, the Ritz bankruptcies certainly got to be something people are going to talk about. Yeah. Ritz Camera is the largest retailer in the United States. They owed both Canon and Nikon collectively $40 million. $40 million. $40 million wow. worth of unsecured debt, which, you know, Nikon and Canon, uh, Canon had, uh, from my understanding, um, you know, 27 of that and Nikon 13. I don't know if those numbers are accurate. I keep getting different numbers. But whatever portion of it was, I'm sure neither company's happy. And they're going to have to kiss that goodbye. They're not going to get it. That's true. I knew, I knew the writing was on the wall for Ritz, honestly, about three weeks ago. I went on a photo walk here in the Bay Area and uh, stopped by a Ritz camera to pick up a compact flash card. And I walked in there and asked the gentleman, I was like, do you have any uh, four gigabyte compact flash cards? You know, I didn't mess. I didn't specify any particular make or anything. And he said, uh, "What's that?" <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, is there a reason why a company like Rich that specializes in photography with the popularity of photography, you know, should be going under? Do you have to blame them and their business model? I had heard that they also own this giant sort of boat showroom place where they sell boating boat supplies and boats and and that's what's kind of dragged down the rich chain well i think it's hard for any you know brick and mortar uh, reseller uh, reseller to really compete with uh at this point uh, whether you're talking about uh, b and h or uh, from in my oftentimes for me amazon um is is just an easier place to buy a lot of these cameras especially if you're doing a lot of research online you already kind of know what you want uh, when you get in there, and um, you, you know, there's a lot of great review sites, so you pretty much know what the cam- what camera you want. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're going to pick it up and feel it, and a lot of people will pick it up and look at it, and and then go buy it somewhere else because it's going to be cheaper than than what they're going to buy because the the your uh, brick and mortar has to pay for the overhead of having a brick and mortar. Yeah. And, and so I think that that's the that's the that may, it makes it very difficult for them to uh, to compete with that. I think one of the one of the things that that keeps me going to brick and mortar, and I'm 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 gradually shifting over to be 100% online. But when buying big ticket expensive items like camera gear, I'm always afraid that something's going to go wrong with it. it's going to be broken or something. I want to be able to get back in the car and take it back and get another one and not have to worry about getting the RMA and shipping it back and another four or five days goes by before I get the new one that I hope is the correct one. You know, that's that's the one negative that, you know about about shop, shipping or shopping exclusively online for me. Right. I think for go ahead. We're going to say Aaron. Oh, sorry. I was just going to mention um, the best explanation I've read online regarding Ritz was that they had so many of their eggs in the uh, in the photo finishing and printing business. Um, so that was a huge part of what they were doing, and that has been dwindling very rapidly because people are, you know, are putting things online now. They're doing a lot more printing of their own, or since they're putting them online, they're not doing nearly as many prints. And you know, the profit margin that existed at least for a long time uh, before Walmart and groups like that started undercutting it was uh, really quite good on people doing four by fives and then double prints and so on and so forth. So I'll put a link in the show notes. But I read a really good explanation that that sounded like that had a lot to do uh, with Ritz's. Uh, you know, problems right now. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that a lot of uh, that Ritz, I think, definitely had a problem with, uh, and I think a lot of brick and mortars have a problem with, is is they don't realize that the only reason to to buy from them is customer service. I mean that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you have to have good customer service, and you walk into Ritz, and I usually felt like I was getting beaten. 
Yeah. You know, oh, like, you well, know, then you have to go to that. You have to go to that that photography store in San Jose if you really, really, or Palo Alto, <laughs> really, really want to get beat. And I know the ones you're talking about. What you would went, the name of that place be? I want to out them right now. I'm not even going to say it. Okay. <laughs> let's just say point. let's just say the the camera store in, in San Jose. <laughs> No, Palo Alto. Oh, there's one in San Jose too. That uh, oh, is there? yeah, I know that there's a, in in San Francisco. There's one called Discount Camera, and it was no. everyone's really nice. But you know, you know that they're totally marking oh, this, everything. This is a place it's, where I I went in on Fred's recommendation. Oh, I told you that a friend of mine at Adobe called this place "Keep It and Shove It." That's all I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> they said it was "Keep It and Shove It." That they was it. Guys, have you have you guys ever tried to purchase equipment in Hong Kong? Because I have. Years back, I would go in. I would go to Hong Kong, and and you know what? Talk about being literally thrown out of a store. I mean, they expect at the time, anyway. And this was a few years ago, but the places I would go into, they would expect you to come in, know exactly what you want, and if you were to take too much time, I had li- I was literally thrown out of a store. You know, I'm sorry. You know, we we can't help you go away. I mean, I don't <laughs> quite understand. And then you go to and then you go wow. to Japan. You go to you go to somewhere like Big Camera in uh, in uh, or or one of the big the big camera shops in in Akabahara, mm-hmm. and they have a Canon rep and they have a Sony rep and they have a whole one whole floor that's just dedicated to cameras. I mean, because there's six other floors dedicated to everything else, and it's every camera you could possibly imagine. And there's guys walking around that actually know most of what there is to know about these cameras, and you tell them what you want to do, and then they show because there it's 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 dizzying. To find the right camera there because there's so many options. Yeah. And uh, but they 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 kind of walk you through. Well, here's the two or three cameras. Of course, they that you have to do it with, with someone who can speak Japanese. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that. But the point is, is that is that it is. I mean, that is the kind of uh, you know customer service that if you're going to do a brick and mortar, you almost have to commit yourself to, uh, because that's the kind of stuff that that someone's going to expect. If I already know what I need, I am not walking into a a store. Unless yeah. I need it today. Like if I'm going on a trip, I should have gotten it earlier. I'm going to get it. And almost with Amazon Prime for three ninety nine, I can have it the next day. So it really has to be I need it today or I'm trying to develop a relationship with a comp- because I'm buying a lot of stuff. And, yeah. um, you know, it's hard to find a camera shop that makes that worth it anymore. So, Steve Simon, where where do you buy your stuff from? Do you just hoof it on down to B&H and pick up what you need and go or are you online? Well, I mean, you know, see, there's the thing. I mean, I really believe it'd be a shame to lose the whole brick-and-mortar thing, and I think there has to be some of those places in existence. Now, granted, B&H is a brick-and-mortar superstore in a high-volume place, and they're a go-to place, and, and people know they have everything there, but their 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 customer service and, and their experience in the store itself is echoed on the site, and I think that maybe in the future we're going to have to, if you're going to have a brick-and-mortar place, you have to have also a huge presence on the web that, that equals the quality of, of the store that you're in. But I mean, I, I do, I, I'll go to B&H. I mean, I'm spoiled. In New York City, um, you know, there's so many places, but there's some other stores that I, I will go to as well. I mean, frankly, I'm not buying all that much stuff these days. So, so you know, I mean, I, I, I make, you know, I'm, it's not just about the equipment. There's not a lot of, it's different when you, you had to spend a lot on consumables. And I think these days, um, you know, and especially now, people are being a little bit more, more careful. But uh, uh, it's hard to compete with the pricing of, of the online places. Well, you yeah. know, when I went when I went to the keep it and shove it place, they quoted me a price that was above the manufacturer. No, no that, that's what happened here. Discount camera. So, and yeah. the, the best thing that I do is I walked into discount discount camera here in, in San Francisco, and I walk in with my iPhone, and I and I you know and I look at the thing, and I just type in the number. Uh, 
you know, in Amazon, in my little Amazon app. <laughs> and, yeah, and, I was like, then. and I was like, uh, do you get that it's actually higher <laughs> than the retail? You know, like, it wasn't was higher I, than Amazon. The, it was higher than the retail number. When I told the guy that he was selling this, it was, it, it was a, a head, tripod head. And I said, you're selling this for more than the manufacturer suggested retail price. He grabbed the item, slammed it in the case, locked it, turned around, went behind the counter, folded his arm. <laughs> Are you now, sure you weren't I, I, at the primary school next to the camera shop? I gotta Did he turn you, his nose up too? <laughs> I got to tell you, I won't miss those folks if they go BK. And, uh, and, and, you know, customer service at a lot of these places, let's just face it, isn't great. I think the best bet these days is to simply look for the lowest price. I hate to say it, but people aren't earning the business anymore. They think they're entitled to it. And, and I got to say, Amazon, if you are careful about who you're buying from on Amazon, most people don't realize when you go to Amazon, about half the time you're not buying from Amazon. You're buying from one of their resellers, and it can be one of these Broadway photo style, you know, places in in New York that are, you know, in somewhere yeah. in Brooklyn, and maybe or maybe not they got a camera. I always only buy if it's actually coming from Amazon, but they've got probably the best deals, or at least certainly competitive. I think one of the takeaways for the for the Twip audience is, you know, depending on your level of urgency, regardless, do your homework online first and if you need it right now take that research and go buy it from a reputable brick and mortar if not just buy it online and be sure that you're getting it from the place that's that's selling it and not not a third-party shyster i just wanted to add fred because you you raised a very good point i mean some of the big places they will allow you to return your stuff within the seven or fourteen days if for whatever reason it's it's not what you expected or you know you've got something that's a bit of a lemon yeah. uh, and that's a huge thing when you're making a major purchase and i wondered guys i mean my experience has been that when I'm buying, you know, a, a brand name piece of equipment, be it a lens or a, a camera, you know, I'm always I'm always quite happy with what I get. But I, I wonder if you guys know the differences, let's say, between you know a 24 millimeter, the same lens by the same company, the quality control level. Is there? Uh, there's got to be a variation to a certain extent. Has anyone done any? Has anyone ever received a lemon or, or feels that they want to try out two or three before they they they? You mean of the identical lens model? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. no usually it's the phrase good copy, bad copy, which you see referenced I, I think, a lot. I think most of that is internet folklore. I know it does happen, so don't, you know, I, I know it does happen. Don't but, obsess about it, but yeah. But don't know. I, I mean, I bought as much camera gear as anybody here probably, and I've never had a quote-unquote bad copy of a lens. Yeah, no, nor have I. But it's true. I've 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 heard that expounded various times, and it's actually good to know that uh, the quality control does work at these major companies. Yeah, I'm not saying that there isn't going to be a problem. I mean, I, I have received a DOA camera body before. Um, that happened once, but I mean, th their failure rates are pretty pretty minimal. Yeah. All right, software. Apparently, uh, one of the one of the actually a competitor to Lightroom uh, in terms of JPEG processing and speed of processing is um, is Photo Mechanic. That's been out for a while now and has become a stable or a staple for a lot of photographers that need to process a lot of images really, really fast. And has been uh, sort of competing with Lightroom in terms of its flexibility and speed. And they have uh, they've stepped out of beta, and they're now available for download and purchase. Are you, any of you guys using that software? Have you had any experiences with it? It's a primarily uh, a lot of photojournalists use it. Mm -hmm. Steve, uh, I, I I've used it before, but of course I don't use it now. I mean, it seems to be a fine program. There's another one that's very good called Breeze Browser. Um, they work similarly, um, 
but I I know that Breeze browser is Windows only, which means I'll never use it. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure about Photo Mechanic. I haven't I haven't messed with it in so long. I don't remember if it's gone to Windows only or not. Yeah, Steve, how does uh, I'm sure you've at least touched the application. How does it stack up with say Aperture? Well, I, I think that Photo Mechanic, you know, it was it was embraced by the photojournalism or anyone, event photographers, people that had to go through lots and lots of images in a hurry. And, you know, for the longest time, actually up until, and I'm not sure about Lightroom, but up until this latest version of, of, um, of Aperture where they've now um, allow uh, the, the uh, built-in uh, JPEG within the raw file to be seen, yeah. made it lightning fast with a fast preview mode. Um, up until this time, that really nothing could could touch it. So uh, I think you know by habit, a lot of people that started using it and 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 don't really need to kind of uh, catalog their work, or at least they don't think they do. Um, they stick with it. It still works good. It works fast. It's it's quick for for doing your editing and captioning and so on. But it it has been very limited because it doesn't do much beyond that in terms of you know what Lightroom or Aperture or some of the other ones do. So, but it's still there. Yeah, yeah, it's still, <clears throat> excuse me, it's still chugging away and people are still using it. So, uh, what else is in here? Oh, okay, uh, Adobe, of course, has released a, a CS4 update. One of the other things I saw about Adobe this week was they issued a plugin. Did you guys see this? They, they issued a plugin to disable the trackpad on the MacBook Pros. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the solution you want to reach for. Hey, we don't, we can't make our stuff work with it, so we'll just turn it off. I don't know uh, what so, the thinking was, but that that was that was pretty interesting that they're disabling functionality on the Apple product yeah. so that it works better with their software. And you know why? You know, so it, that when you call when you call Adobe Support, they go, uh, "What what trackpad?" Yeah, they're, well, they're, I got to tell you, this is a huge, up, this is a great update, and if you don't have that, to, if you don't have that fix, go out and get it. Uh, if you if you have CS4, they're the most annoying thing possible is you sit there and if you absolutely accidentally hit with two fingers you end up with this auto it starts to scale and rotate which i'm sure is seen as a feature by some but it's a bug for most of the time (laughs) you know and um and and so and then you have to go and reset the rotation there's no easy way to just get it back to being square again and um it is it is truly annoying and and i'm really glad that they addressed it because but but what wouldn't it been better alex if they addressed it by making their software work with the gestures in the right way i just don't know of any way that they make that work that would not be just painful because you don't want it to rotate and you don't really want it to zoom when you accidentally put down two fingers it's not that's not usually what you uh maybe i mean they'd have to have a lot of customization because i think most people would find it to be um really annoying i mean it's one of those things that it's a it's a it's a cool thing on paper but as soon as you start to use it and you're trying to work uh, and it's constantly wanting to to jump in and out of that uh you know it's it, I, I'm just glad it's. And, and Scott, you got to take into account that the, when the when the that functionality or the multi-touch functionality for the MacBook Pro, etc., came out, it was around the time when Photoshop was coming out. So it's not like they could turn on a dime and fix yeah, or change guess, software to fix it to work with this thing that Apple just announced. So they have, you got to come some slack. I'm trying to be sympathetic, but here's the deal. I mean, I interviewed one of the big shots there at Adobe when Photoshop came out, and he made it a point during the interview to brag on the fact that they supported multi-touch. And so because he bragged about it, I'm thinking, okay, well, if you're going to brag about it, then you ought to really do it. That's just, I mean, it's not a big deal. Yeah, not a big deal. I'm glad that they stopped doing it. That's all I got to say. 
All right. And uh, also, what what's Aaron? I'm looking in the in our notes here. The Samsung has announced a WB100 and a WB550. Oh, just, just keeping people up to date. I mean, we're going to see lots of these. I actually threw that in there. You did. What, what's that camera about? I mean, what is it? Well, what's I mean, special one of the, about it. Well, one of the cool things about it is, is that it, it is just a, it's a nice little camera that also um, will. There's two. There's two sets. A couple. There's a lot of cameras that came out. This one just has a really nice. Goes all the way out to 24 and all the way into 240. Uh, millimeter, so it's a it's a 10x um, zoom, which you don't see that often in these little compact cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, quite that much uh, zoom, you either get wide or you get kind of medium far, and so um, so it's just it's it's you know it's not very expensive. These are just nice little consumer cameras. Um, Schneider lens too. Yeah, yeah. So they it it looks like it's a you know it's it's a nice little. It'll be fun to uh, hopefully test it at some point in time. And then did we talk- to, uh, see that at PMA, Alex. Yeah, it looks like a great little camera. And did we talk about the HDR stuff in the Ricoh, the new Ricoh? I don't think we did. I don't think, I don't so. think we, we need to um, because that's very interesting. Yeah, so one of the things to notice is that they don't call it HDR, but they say it's increasing the dynamic range. And what they're doing is they, you know, this is what we've talked about in the past, that this is what was coming, uh, which is they, because they can take a lot of photos at one time, what they're, what they're now doing is taking two photos um, and spreading those photos out. Um, in uh, so that it, it, different exposures, and then it's automatically combining them back together to create a wider dynamic range uh, within the image. So it's doing basically what you would do in an HDR program. Uh, it's doing a light version of it. It's only two images, uh, but it will greatly uh, in, increase the dynamic range. And um, you know, it's doing it, kind it, of what it, your eye does, right? Uh, a little bit what your eye does. It, uh, it gets it, it. This is this is the first step to where digital really starts to go after kind of the range that you would see within film. Um, this first step probably doesn't get it quite there, and it's probably a rough step. And it'll be fun to test it and really play with what these images look like. And uh, but the you know you can imagine if you go a year or two or three years out where they start taking three or even five exposures and combining them you know in less than a second. Uh, you're talking about having HDR rather than being something that was geeky, um, be something that is eventually ending up in you know every one of these cameras. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that like ten years down the road, that this kind of idea is going to be in every digital camera, every serious digital camera. It just only makes sense. You're going to have a much greater dynamic range. You'll be able to capture a lot more. Mm-hmm. You want to get rid of detail, you can always do that later. But I suspect you know the the big professional cameras digital cameras of the future are going to have this rolled into sort of a normal sensor capture. That'd be great if you could if you could have the functionality built in to actually shoot a document that then comes into Photoshop in layers so that you'd have these different exposure layers already stacked and ready for you to mask off or make adjustments to and you're not sort of stuck with what the camera thought should the dynamic range should be. Well, and, and, and what you're looking at is you're looking at completely separate, uh, severing the the need, the need quantity of light. So quality of light is still something you have to pay attention to, where the light's coming from uh, the diff- and how that's measured and so on and so forth. So that that is still something that's important. But the quantity of light, um, you, you're basically going to eventually get to a point where you're just capturing all of the light that was in the scene <laughs> from the little from the from the little literally the filaments in the light. Uh, that's in front of you in, in a tungsten light or whatever that's in front of you for as long as those last. And um, uh, all the way to the, the detail in the little shadows um, that are, uh, in, you know, in the foreground. Yeah. And so um, it's going to go, you know, you're going to get that whole range in a camera. And when you, when you pull the trigger, it, can, it will capture, it'll, you know, this, this technology will grow to a point where it captures all of it. 
And then it's not even in layers. It literally just comes in as one image that describes all of that information. And then as you play with levels and dodge and burn and so on and so forth, you're just bringing that information out, whatever information that you want. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty uh, revolutionary when we look five years down the road or ten years down the road. Well, if you're interested in, in learning more about high-definition or high-dynamic-range photography, a uh, friend of mine, or actually a guy, I just actually just met him, but I think he's a friend now, Tyler Ratcliffe runs a website called Stuck in Customs. I think it's at stuckincustoms.com, and he's got some great, not only some great photography on that site, but some interesting and really detailed tutorials on uh, high dynamic range photography. So if you're interested in diving in more before you actually go run out and pick up your new Olympus that might shoot it, um, I'd suggest checking out that site. He's a long time listener to the show, Fred. And cool. Very good. Doing um, this in camera is going to open the door too to, uh, to grabbing objects that are maybe not fast moving uh, objects, but that's a problem that we have with HDR right now is, is having to do the setup and do shots, even the movement of leaves on a tree. You know, can lead to blurring and, and problems in your uh, in your final image. But if it's going to be done in a fraction of a second, multiple exposures is when the shutter opens. Um, you know, we're looking at assembling things that might even be moving or at least slowly moving objects can now be rendered in HDR. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. So, Alex Lindsay, who's our who's our wonderful sponsor for the week? Drobo. <laughs> and on Drobo. to the next segment. <laughs> <laughs> The world's fastest sponsorship advertising. Yeah, no, no. So Drobo is our is our sponsor, and uh, and and you know Fred's trying to pass it off to me because he works for the company. Yes, I'm, so I'm um, trying to be kind of you know covert about passing it off to you, but thanks for outing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we have to. We have to let our listeners know that Fred works for the company now. I do. Uh, but we've been. And don't you know, call me there. <laughs> So the uh, but uh, you know he but Drobo of course have been longtime friends of the show and sponsors of the show before Fred was there and uh, and of course we have a, a large collection of Drobos here and of course Drobo gives you a uh, redundant backup it's um, it is uh, an advanced way to uh, make sure that all of your photos uh, stay safe you can uh, lose a whole drive and uh, just plug another one in they don't the drives don't have to be the same size they don't have to be the same make um they you know and so uh you can get up to 16 gigs when you when the when the drives are available uh, i think most of the time we put in four one ter i'm sorry up to 16 terabytes and we put up i think four one terabytes and get a little over three of storage and uh you know but it's safe storage and uh so uh, anyway you can uh, uh that's um that is, uh, you know, what Drobo offers. Uh, it is something that we use all the time, and uh, I think we get more and more of them uh, weekly. And we actually deliver our um, assets to our clients in Drobos now, because we a lot of our stuff when we hand a big project to a client is three or four terabytes, mm -hmm. and uh, we found that they were very appreciative if we just gave them a big Drobo. And one thing that I just found out, you know, since you know getting the the in depth briefing on the on the hardware was, and maybe you guys knew this, but I didn't know that you could take out the four drives that were in your Drobo uh, and stick them in another one and have it just mount. Now, I know it's fundamental. It seems like it's obvious, but I didn't know that you could pull them out, stick them back in another uh, enclosure in any order and you're back up and running. Say something happened to your enclosure and you needed to, to switch over to a new one. I thought that was uh, pretty eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it's uh, people have asked, like, what happens if my Drobo goes down? Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, what can I... Um, 
uh, you know, how do I handle that? And the, the, the answer is, is that you can just pull those drives out get a new Drobo, put it in, although that, you know, rarely happens. But if you, uh, if you need to, we put a bad drive in one time that was screwed up and it got stuck in the Drobo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so this turned out to be very useful. So, uh, so anyway, the, um, uh, anyway, so if you, people are interested in getting a Drobo, you can go to drobostore.com and use the code, uh, TWIP849. It's very, uh, very complicated there. TWIP849. Uh, you can get $50 off your Drobo of choice. Um, so uh, drobostore.com, TWIP849. And we'll have that in our show notes. Uh, and uh, that is uh, good through the end of March, through the end of this also, month. Also, Alex, that's about uh, that's good for a bundle. It's about 15% off the price, uh, the lowest price they've ever offered for drives and a Drobo. Right. Right, so it's about $150 off uh, if you get a four-terabyte package. So you get the Drobo and the four-terabyte package. Uh, with It comes with a drive, ready to go, uh, and you can save up to $150 because it's about $1,000. That package. makes it $849, and then if you click the manufacturer's instant rebate, that takes 50 bucks off of that. Right, so it's it's a it's. We're practically giving these things away, people. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I researched it because when I when I saw that, I was like, okay, so I, could, could I match that price? And I, you know, can I match that? Because a lot of times you talk about these sales, and then you go, you know, you could get it cheaper somewhere else. But if you look at the Amazon price for a Drobo mixed with the the raw drive cost and everything else, you can't you can't beat it. So it's a it's a great price, and uh, people should check it out. So twip eight four nine at drobostore dot com. Back to you, Fred. Thank you, Alex. Um, <laughs> So continuing with the news, uh, <laughs> so apparently Steve has sold his Digicam, <laughs> not Steve Simon. No, I wish it was me because it sounds like uh, somebody made some money on this website. So Steve's Digicams, the website, has been sold, just like DP Review was sold in a similar manner to uh, Amazon. Uh, so what, what, was the, what was the selling price? Do you, you guys know? It I don't think anybody it, knows. No? It's part of a bigger amount. It's a bit part of a bigger package that they paid around two and a half million for. So we don't know what portion went to Steve. Yeah. What would you guess, Scott? You you have experience in these matters. Well, I mean, I've sold a couple of websites, and I'm going to guess in the half million to seven hundred fifty range. Maybe maybe less with a revenue share deal. Sometimes these deals go down like maybe at a quarter million, and then a certain percentage of the revenue ad infinitum, etc. It's really just a guess. I mean, I I can tell you what what I would have sold it for. I mean, I don't know if he held out for it. in this in this economy. He might have taken less than normal because uh, things are down. But it's a very popular site. I think it's a good move uh, when in the when the right people, for instance. I think it was a very good move for Amazon to acquire DP Review. That made total sense. Yeah, and uh, th that drives traffic like nobody's business. Do do we know? And do we know what the, the traffic split between, say, a, a Steve's Digicams and DP Review, say, pre Amazon acquisition was? I don't. And, you know, I, any traffic number I ever see on the web, I just don't believe. For instance, if they give you the, you know, Alta Vista rankings, well, that doesn't include Max. So uh, there's very few of these traffic things seem to be accurate. I mean, I don't even trust the ones on my own site. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> I mean, you know, we do the best we can to figure it out. But sometimes I look at the statistics and I go, no, how can that be? Yeah. You, know, you see big swings from day to day, and, and uh, I, I still think a lot of the traffic stuff is voodoo guesswork. Yeah. But I can tell you in scientific terms what it was. It was a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. <laughs> you are brilliant. No wonder you're, you're such a good businessman. <laughs> it was a whole lot, Fred. <laughs> well, speaking of a whole lot, uh, Annie Leibovitz is, talking, uh, is talking shocking. 
it's, yeah, shocking, shocking. She's uh, apparently put up her photos, put them in a in a in a pawn shop, a high end pawn shop, <laughs> for sale to uh, to cover some debt. Uh, Steve, I don't even know what to do with this. Steve, you you gotta you gotta you gotta talk about that. Well, yeah, I'll talk about actually. You know, Annie, the building I live in, she used to live in the penthouse here on 24th Street and 10th Avenue in this magnificent, beautiful penthouse. She moved out a couple of years ago, and she apparently went to the, I believe it's the West Village, and bought a big place and renovated and so on. But really, the shocking thing about it is uh, that she put up almost $15.5 million, both in real estate, but the intriguing thing here is she put up the copyright on every photo that she's thus taken, as well as future copyright until this thing is, is paid off. And oh, you know, wow. she is arguably one of the most financially successful and beyond that, of course, but photographers, I mean, I had heard um, that her day rate was anywhere between 50000 for some jobs and, and not so much the editorial, but for advertising, you know, to much more than that. So, you know, they say that she makes $2 million a year. But, uh, yeah, it, it's really quite surprising as photographers struggle to stay afloat to have someone like Annie Leibovitz with all her financial wherewithal and all she's done to be in this kind of a mess. I mean, there's obviously more to this story than than we know but uh it's it was it was really surprising yeah it was surprising and unfortunate well i, I have mm. to admit i would have walked away from whatever lease i was in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know in that in that case if i had that that collection uh it's a she, she I'm, obviously she must be fairly sure that she's uh gonna you know that, that she's gonna be able to get the money back but or, wow. or desperate who knows i mean she, really. spent, she makes two million a year but she spends one and a half on camels <laughs> camel. Okay, now that I don't understand. <laughs> what what she, are you talking about? Camel cigarettes. The, she smokes like a s- chimney. Oh, oh, I don't she know. She took about my that. photograph in the mid '90s for a magazine. Really? Did she? I walked into her studio. She had like twelve assistants. And were you I in a were you in a bathtub with milk? No, I was just it was just a simple shot. I'll I'll try to dig up the picture. She actually managed to make me look like Michael Jackson. <laughs> Wow! Wait a minute. This wasn't the shot of you with the uh, with the caterpillar mustache, was it? No, this is the one with the. I got a hat and I'm pointing my finger, and she used some weird yellow lighting on me, and my face literally looks white as a ghost. And anyway, I went up there, and I swear to God, I needed oxygen after I left. It was just, I don't think anybody in there but me was not smoking. Wow! Goodness. All right, we're gonna. And move- it wasn't. By the way, the studio was not all that impressive. Scott, I want to move on to this next thing, which in, which uh, which touches on you a little bit. I uh, following your Twitter posts, I noticed when Facebook started their whole, you know, when they changed their terms of service, uh, I noticed that you got a little bit upset about it. What happened? Did you, upset. I did not get one bit upset. Did you pull your account because you you I Twittered closed that, my I closed my account. I wasn't upset. I just closed my account. You shut it down. How many how many friends did you have that you just turned your back on? I, I didn't turn my back on it. I invited, I invited them to follow me on Twitter at Scott Bourne, uh, and and there are 864 of them. Wow! Which is not it's not a lot, but I'll be honest with you. First of all, Facebook is not intended for 55 year old fat guys. Okay, let's just be honest. You know, I'm not looking to hook up with anybody. That's uh, I never got the whole deal of Facebook. That was MySpace. Facebook isn't the hookup place. Well, it's, it it's started, the hey, I used to know you in high school. There you are. It's that well, it, it started out as a way for college kids to meet each other and get together, and and they expanded it to business. I never really enjoyed it, to be honest with you. I know people do, and I think great, glad you enjoy it. I know it's very successful. I got nothing against anybody there, 
But uh, I do much better on Twitter and friend feed. I enjoy those places, so that's where I want to be anyway. But then I read this terms of service agreement, and you know the deal that says basically we have right to sublicense your content. That's part A of what got me, and part B is in perpetuity, even after you close your account. That's it. I'm done. Uh, sublicensing is a, is a big deal. Sublicensing hasn't been talked much. Uh, about much about this deal. Everyone was talking more about the perpetuity clause, but you know, sublicensing says I can take your image. Oh yeah, and then I can sell it to somebody else. Not just use it however I want, but I can sell it. I can modify it. I can make it part of another collection. I can put it on a clip art disc. I can do anything I want. Sublicensing with full rights is very scary. So Scott, how does that work if they had a, a, a particular terms of service in place when a person signs up for the service, say, two years ago? They upload 250 images and then Facebook decides, hey, you know, I want to change the TOS. Don't they, does it apply to any image uploaded from that point forward or is it backwards as well? Well, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not allowed to give legal advice. I can just tell you that uh, generally what happens in these cases is that, you know, if you get out of – if you, you – you, sometimes you have to send a letter. Sometimes you just have to close your account. There are varying things you can do to say, okay, from here forward, I'm not going to participate. Usually, it's simply based on participation. So if you go to the website after the new date, then you're deemed to agree with the new terms. Now, they've been backpedaling on this, trying to say it didn't, it didn't say what it did say, or we didn't mean what it said, and we're going to redo it. And they re rolled back the terms of service, and now they're apparently going to make a, a, a different, uh, you know, another attempt. It could simply be, and I've seen this before with companies I've been involved with, an overzealous lawyer who was just trying to protect his clients and use some boilerplate language that basically gave them all the rights to everything you ever do. But as a photographer, I simply cannot and will not take the chance that someone's going to get access to my content and be in the position to sublicense it. It would then leave me in violation of numerous contracts that I've engaged in where I've promised exclusive rights to people. Yeah. So, I mean, there, it becomes a very sticky widget, as we say. And for me, it's just not, it wasn't that important to be there in the first place. There's no real benefit to me personally, not to Scott Bourne to be there. I'm sure many people enjoy it. I want to come out and say, one, I've never said boycott it. Two, I've never said anything bad about them. Three, I don't care if you're on there. I'm just not going to be on there. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty definitive, Scott. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. You know, here's a guy like Steve Simon on with us. Now, Steve Simon's got a deal right now where he's taking pictures of Carson Kressley for a, a show. I'm guessing that you know there there's a fairly definitive contract on who's got the rights to those deals. If Steve gave them perpetual exclusive rights, if he transferred either his copyright or licensed permanently exclusively those images and then somehow got them into Facebook and they became part of a sub-license collection, Steve would be liable to the people he sold those images to. That's a fairly serious situation. It is, but you know, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, you know, I would say that a large percentage of the people that are participating in uploading images to Facebook aren't going to be of the caliber of Steve Simon and I'll B. Agree. Well, but and B, the you know, speaking about myself personally, I don't upload anything to Facebook that I don't wor that I'm worried about. You know, it's going to be happy snaps from a party. Oh, this was a, this was New Year's Eve. You know, it's that kind of stuff. It's not well, and it I, work. And I think so, I think that I think it was. I think it was kind of amazing that they that they reacted at all because I know my my guess was and I have to admit I, I was I was very wrong on this one I saw what they were doing I saw the complaints and I and I was like you know they're just going to sit on this for 
a month and you know most it'll it'll the news cycle will end and you know one or two percent of the facebook population will leave and uh and then it'll be back to business as usual people are tired of this kind of it's in a sense corporate greed i mean it, here they are just sweeping in saying hey we're gonna own everything that you guys put up i mean i think in this particular environment i mean that is just not going to fly anymore people are just frustrated and and are not going to take it anymore frankly so well, i think I, as I'm i said but i think i think for the general i, I but i think that uh, the uh, for 99 percent of the people who are using facebook you know the, the kind of photos that they put up don't have any inherent value yeah, yeah. Agree. True, but but it's really the psych- psychology of what they did and i don't think people uh think that that's really the right thing for them to do yeah it's true and at the same time you're you're right alex the the images that say I put up there, I don't think they have, I'm not going to sell them to anybody. But at the same time, I don't want to be driving, you know, to San Francisco and I see a billboard with a photo of, <laughs> of me and my friends hanging out at New Year's Eve up there either, you know. So. <laughs> I want to see that billboard. I want to see that too. I want to see that billboard. So if you can make that happen, give me a call. <laughs> you don't want to see that. Well, then, you'll, then you'll join Facebook again, Scott. Well, the issue I is, is that, they, that this, this, would get, this would get us back to the same issue that hit the ad agency that used the Flickr images. It wouldn't matter whether, for most of these images, it wouldn't matter whether they had the rights to the image or not because they wouldn't have the... Uh, unless, I mean, if it was shot in public, they would. But if they were shot like your friends in a party uh, or whatever and not used for news... Uh, the issue is, is that, that they wouldn't really uh, have the rights to use that photo just about anywhere without um, releases really. from the people that are in the photos. That's true. So them owning the photo is not nearly as powerful as one would think because they really can't use most of them because it's Facebook. People's faces. But don't you think, too, a lot of the arrogance of, of, of these suits in the past where people have kind of stolen images and just put it up there and, yeah, come after me because most people won't. I mean, you know, that's all part of it, too. They, they I guess they'll, they'll do that anyway, though. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if they're – I don't know if uh, – if, 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 if that's not a Facebook thing. That's that if you put a resol- if you put an image up that's of the resolution and – I, and, I, and I'm saying this knowing that I don't put any photos that I think are of value on any website other than my own. You know, so so I have to admit that I mean I I'm just like I just assume that if I'm putting stuff up on on Flickr or Facebook and, and you know I don't put that many images up on Flickr or Facebook, um, uh, that those are going to be something that are going to get that possibly could get passed around and sent to places and you know so on and so forth. So to me, I just go into it knowing that it's you know that's uh, dangerous waters. As soon as you put it up, on, even if I put it up on the web. I mean, even on my own site, I assume that people are going to, you know, take it and use it. Obviously, if, they, if a big company takes it, that would be a good cash in for me. Yeah. Um, but if uh, if um, someone, the average, uh, you know, person throwing together a presentation uh, does it, you know, I don't know what I'm, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't even know. All right. Well, we even could- even if I even if I copyright it, even if it's covered by me, if it, you know, I think that we also need to just make sure that we're aware that once you put up a high resolution image on the web. It, it it will be and if it's a good photo, it will be used. <laughs> the, yeah, the just, question, just operate under that assumption. It won't be used by Nike, but it'll be used by you know cor- in corporate presentations, you know, uh, all over the world. Yeah. Well, we could talk about this for an entire show, I think. But I think now we should jump into the picks of the week because I'm anxious to see what uh, Aaron has chosen this time. What is it, Aaron? Um, my uh, pick this week is uh, a device I use fairly frequently, actually. Um, it's called the Nodal Ninja 3, and uh, it is. And I, I kind of chose this partly for Scott's benefit so that we could no, actually use the word Nodal. Nodal Ninja. Ninja. That, that sounds a little yeah. X-rated, whatever that is. I'm sorry Ron's <laughs> not here to participate in the, in the Nodal references. But uh, actually, the Nodal Ninja um, is a panoramic head. 
so it sits on your tripod uh, where you would put, you know, normally have the the regular tripod head, uh, and your camera mounts on it, and it allows me to move the camera with very, very precise um, degree markers uh, for doing 360 degree panoramic photos um, for QuickTime VR, for mosaic shots, so, so on and so forth, um, and it also places the camera. Um, in the position that's what's called the nodal point. So the because you don't just rotate the camera on on the uh, tripod mounting point. You you know your pictures aren't actually going to align quite properly. You're actually needing to rotate it as an offset of that uh, relative to the lens you're using, so that you're rotating around what's referred to as a nodal point. And it gets kind of technical. And there's actually some arguments to say that's not completely correct. But anyway, um, with the Nodal Ninja is a really fantastic device because a, a lot of um, pano heads are usually extremely expensive. And uh, this one is, is beautifully designed, um, very well priced. And again, the model I have right now is called the Nodal Ninja 3, which was current when I purchased it. There's actually been a revision to that as well, the Mark II. But the new Nodal Ninja 5 has been released now, and I'm actually planning to do an upgrade on that sometime soon, and I'll report on that in the future. But one of the big uh, benefits of the Nodal Ninja 5 is that with my DSLR bodies, currently I have to take my battery grip off you know, to kind of shrink the body size down a little bit before I put it on the Nodal Ninja. But the 5 is actually physically much larger and stronger, and it's designed to take uh, the bigger body higher-end cameras uh, with their battery grips on them. Uh, so it's a little bit quicker for me to use as far as putting the camera on and off of it if I'm uh, doing pano shots in the middle of an event, cool. for instance. So All right. great device. Highly cool. recommended. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Scott Bourne, what is your pick? I'm going to pick a, a system of light modifiers for portable flash users. I just picked up the SB900 uh, for some flight shots I was doing in Florida. And uh, this company called Han L Photo, H-O-N-L-P-H-O-T-O, makes a series of light modifiers that are different from anything I've ever seen. They have uh, a gel kit. They've got gobos. They've got... um, a real nice little snoot that doubles as uh, as just a flash multiplier, and the stuff's not terribly expensive. It all works with a single universal mount that doesn't require you to use any kind of adhesives like a lot of the other flash accessories do. They've even got a speed grid, which I've never seen for a portable flash. Nice. You just put this photo strap on, and it just slips on over your camera. And it works with Velcro, so it fits on most flashes. I said camera, I meant flash, sorry. And then the, all of their accessories attach to it. Um, I, I just think I think it's pretty neat. I have not tested it extensively. I played with it yesterday for the first time, but I came to really appreciate the system approach and the ability to do things that I've never been able to do. There's a speed gobo bounce card. Now, for those of you that don't know what that is, there are times when you've got... F- you know, light that you're controlling, artificial light, and you want it to spill onto one subject but not another. With a gobo, you can keep the light from going to the left, let's say, where there might be somebody who's already well lit and force the light to the right. I've never seen anything like that for a portable flash head. There are tons of those kinds of accessories and light modifiers for big, you know, studio flash, but I've never seen it for a portable flash. So it's pretty ingenious, and uh, a lot of guys like it. Joe McNally uses some of their stuff. Uh, uh, the, the Strobus guys use some of their stuff. So I'm in pretty good company. Uh, check it out at hanlphoto.com. And speaking of Joe McNally, just uh, uh, a quick announcement. I think he finally finished his book, The Hot Shoe Diaries, uh, Creative Applications of Small Flashes, under the, uh, I think, the Voices That Matter imprint from Peach Pit Press. 
has put that out and it's uh it's on amazon now and it's in my it's in my wish list uh sort of cash list on amazon as soon as that thing starts shipping officially i'm getting it but it's uh i was going through his site at joemcnally.com and uh he's got a sort of a breakdown of what that book has in it and it goes into all these different details of just how to do all these crazy kind of shots that he does using just small flashes and not the gigantic strobe slash power pack sync cord all that crazy stuff so check it out on amazon.com and uh alex what's your what's your pick my pick is uh, and we've talked about this in the past on the show but i i just think we need to actually pick it uh is uh the light panels the mic light panels micro uh now this is a little light panel we have um i think we have like 14 of the one by ones which are the big ones and then we also have a bunch of the uh, mi- uh, minis uh, which are a little bit larger but this is a micro and this little micro is just really really well thought out now you can throw this on a video camera uh, you can throw it into the shoe on on most of your little still cameras or almost all the still cameras that have a shoe uh, and um, and or you can just ha- literally just hold it. Uh, the great thing is, is two AA batteries. Uh, it is a little um, very uh, bright light um, that is light. It's easy to throw onto uh, a camera. It is easy to, especially when you're running around and you need to, you know, um, either shoot video or stills, and you just you don't want a big thing kind of uh, that you have to carry around and a lot of us know that a lot of these lights especially when if you want them on continuously which sometimes can be a little uh, easier for people uh, that you we used to have these big packs (laughs) that we wear as as uh, as, you know these big belts um, so that we'd have enough power for all these lights and this is just two AA batteries you can replace them they last forever because it's LED it's not something um, more primitive and uh, and you can and it has a great it has actually has a flip down so you can throw gels in so you can you know get it for daylight and gel it to uh, indoor or you can um, diffuse it uh, all of these things um, you know work really really well and it's just well thought out uh, it's light um, we just our standard package for our video cameras um, is to have one of these uh, uh, ready to go and for our still cameras a lot of times I'll, I'll take one to a to wherever I'm shooting so I can just leave it on and and be able to see what I'm shooting, especially uh, so not a lot of test shooting. I just simply point it. It has a little I can uh, has a t- attenuation, so I can turn it up and down. Uh, so I don't have to. I'm not just stuck with one light, and I can see what I'm shooting when I'm pulling the trigger, rather than shooting and then looking down to see whether it's working or not. Um, no, uh, like- Alex Scott has one too, and I'm just curious. Um, do you notice a big difference in the quality of light um, compared to? Uh, a flash that's mounted uh, on the hot shoe as opposed to this continuous. You know, I find it to be a lot, uh, a, a lot less harsh. That's been my mm-hmm. my experience has been that that um, I get a less harsh look, and mostly that I get I know what I'm looking at. <laughs> it's a it's it's generally a, it's a pretty large source, and I'll actually sometimes balloon um, some diffusion paper, uh, you know, in front of it. So like I'll tape it on so that it's like a little bubble. Um, that sits on the front of it uh, to get even more, even a, a more diffuse uh, look to it. And um, I find it to be less harsh. I mean, Scott may be able to say he's probably shot more on a still camera. Um, but what I love about it is being able to just simply uh, organically turn it up and down looking through the camera so I don't, so I can really see what it's going to do to the image without taking lots of test shots, uh, which I, which I like a lot. So, um, so anyway, it's, it's, uh, I just don't know. I thought it was silly when I first got it. Um, and uh, now I don't know what I don't know what I do without it. Nice. So that's my recommendation. Scott, did you? How, what's your opinion about the the quality of the light? 
I think it's a good quality. I, I it's it's kind of hard to describe. It's just mostly different than Flash. I don't know, I don't know that I would say it's harsher or less harsh. It's just different. It's really hard to explain. But I use it both on, you know, the, I use the LX3. I, I love it on the LX3 because it's, of course, it's as big as the LX3, but um, it works for video or for, you know, helping me do a quick portrait. I do notice that because the light is pretty bright um, and you need it to be pretty bright because it's a small light, uh, it seems to bother the subjects a little more than flash because flash is instantaneous, whereas the LED light stays on. But I use the heck out. In fact, that's what I'm taking the PMA, even though I've got an SB900. I'm taking the little micro light instead because it's real portable, works on four AA batteries. I think it's a great pick. Excellent. There you go. And Steve Simon? Um, well, I'll pick uh, the Dymo Disc Painter Inkjet Disc Printer. And that it's been out for a while. And uh, the reason I picked it, I, I, I have one and I've used it recently. Um, what it does is it, it will allow you to customize your CDs and DVDs by printing you know, photos with text. It comes with a really good software. So for anyone that delivers CDs or DVDs to clients, it kind of ups the ante in terms of the professional uh, uh, look of what you're giving them. And uh, you can choose an image from the shoot as your icon on the CD or DVD. Um, it's very fast. It's very easy to work with. And uh, if you're doing anything professionally where you're delivering CDs or DVDs to clients, it's, it's much improved over, you know, that's the sticky things that you put on the CDs or DVDs. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that for anyone um, wanting to uh, use it for business purposes, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good investment. What do those go for, Steve? Uh, they're about $270 thereabouts. Uh, they're not cheap, and they're dedicated specifically for that. But if you're making money from your photography and you're delivering to CDs, uh, you know, delivering still on CDs and DVDs like a lot of us still do, um, I think it's, uh, you know, is, is, is a good investment. I, I wonder, Fred, do you know of uh, people in the wedding world using this thing? No, no, I don't. And I was going to say that, you know, that... It, what I personally use is I have one of the little uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's one of the little label makers that spits out the little tape of label on the yeah. end, and I use that for being anally organized with my files and folders on my desk. Uh, but for printing on media like that, I'm using uh, what you know, one of my tips from a couple of weeks ago, and that's the Epson Artisan 800 printer that prints scans faxes all that crazy stuff but it also prints onto um, uh, optical media that has the surface that you can print onto so that way you can sort of print the full color image and do your layout and text and all that and drop it right on the image but for 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 like quick stuff where you're gonna you need to burn this disc and give it to a client like right now and you're not worried about all this other stuff in, in, in the full bleed image on the cover of the CD itself, then uh, it sounds like that, that Dymo Printer. Is it Dymo Painter or Dymo Printer? Yeah, Dymo Disc, disc Painter. You know, yeah. again, it's a kind of a specialized thing, but I think if you are working for clients, um, um, what your solution sounds like it works pretty well too. It's, it's basically the same thing. Yeah. Only this is a lot more limited, but probably faster, easier to, to kind of work with. Yeah. Yeah, and a little cheaper too, because the the printer I have, I think it was just shy of five hundred dollars, like four hundred and change, I think. So, yeah, so you're looking at a little bit cheaper for the the Dymo Painter. And my pick is uh, something that's not necessarily photography related, though I'm using it for photography. It's the Live Scribe Pulse Pen, and it uh, essentially is a pen that records 
everything you write, you write under this special paper, and a lot of people have seen it. Uh, you write under this special paper, and it uh, essentially everything you write, because it has a little infrared camera in the tip of it, it records it. So that then when you sync the pen to your Mac or your PC, you can then go through and say, okay, there's that, that pad of notes, yada, yada, yada. But you can also activate recording so that it records and time syncs everything you write or draw on that pad of paper. So then later when you go back to review your notes, you can click on the picture of Scott Bourne that you drew and hear what Scott was saying at that point in time. Now I'm using ah! <laughs> I'm using it specifically for uh, like just sketching out different ideas for uh, different shoots that I want to do. So How wide is that thing? It's it's got a lot of ink, Scott, so it'll cover okay. you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes with extra extra pen inserts, so you know extra cartridges, so you're good to go. Uh, but I use it for drawing, sketching out different ideas for different shots that I I want to do at some point, and I can. A, sync those back to the computer so that I have them. I don't have to worry about keeping the paper around, but I can also speak notes about what I want to do by just say, I want to just draw a little light here. I can say, yeah, and this will be a, you know, a Nikon SB800 flash set at yada, 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 whatever. And when I click that later with the pen, the pen will say that. So I, I love those things too. I saw one at Macworld and thought, man, that is cool. And I think, I think, uh, I think that uh, Alex has a Jones for them too, don't you, Alex? I, I have one. I actually made it. I made it halfway through the presentation at MacWorld, and uh, and I was like, you know, I, I literally the guy started showing it to me, and I said, I don't need you to waste your time or my time. I just, I just need to know uh, where I put my credit card. You know, and uh, so what do you I, use it for, Alex? Um, I use it for uh, a lot of times. I use it for taking notes. Like for instance, Leo. I'm going to start using Leo Studio for um, a couple of the shows. And uh, I am so he gave me the tour, uh, kind of a dizzying tour of his entire studio and how to get, turn everything on and set everything up and make everything work. And to remember it all, I just I turned the audio version on, and then I just wrote highlights as he was talking as fast as I could uh, while he was talking. And then what I ended up with is, is I can go back to any of those things and just simply click on the text that I was writing there and hear wow. Leo talking about whatever he was talking about um, at that moment. And so. But what about people that you're, you're, you know, that are talking to you that you're taking notes? You, I guess you got to tell them that you're going to re record. Yeah, I've, them, right? I've done that a couple times, and 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 you know, I do it in a very unofficial way. I just I I I uh, I, I make everybody laugh about it because I pull it out and I go, oh, I got this really cool pen. It it, uh, it you know it, it, you can record audio and I click it on and then and then you can write and then it'll. It'll sync everything up. So go ahead, and then I and they, yeah. they laugh about it. I make fun of it, and then I and then I say go ahead, and I made it obvious that. Uh, yeah. Um, I just that I'm I just tell and people it's recorded, that it, it's it, me, me recording. It's it, it's recording me telling them that I'm recording. Which yeah. Is kind of I just I just tell folks that anything you say from this point forward can be used against you in a court of law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I don't go. That, I, I I'm not that official. That's all I gotta say. I, I, I totally need that. I, I when I'm taking notes and then I'll go home and I look at my notes. I can't read anything. I can't read my own writing. I'm left-handed. I have no idea what I wrote, honestly. And I think I need one of these. Big I think you need one. They're they're and awesome. I, I do too. And then in six or eight months, you can tell us how you unboxed it. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you have to let your your tech marinate in your your place first before you uh, actually start using it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. So the uh, the we're in the final week of the TWIP photo assignment, and the topic was reflections. So if you haven't put your submission in you need to get it in now also if you're not participating in the Flickr discussion and critique groups please jump over there and don't be like us 
Uh, we, ah! <laughs> we we don't get in there nearly often enough. Um, so if we're we're gonna make an effort to do it, but if you're if you're if you have some downtime, jump in there and discuss and critique and provide feedback. Scott, I know you're laughing because you've been in there, haven't you? I don't go in there anymore. You don't go? Why? Uh, you know, I'm just not good at that. I'm not. I'm just not good at that. Wait a minute. I, wait, 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 wait. Don't you have a website called Scott's Critiques? <laughs> I do. I do that, but I'm, <laughs> I don't do well on Flickr. Is what I guess. I'm oh, okay. I got. You. I don't do well on Flickr. I'm. I'm too old. Oh God! There you go. Hiding behind that excuse again. All I right. don't relate. I don't relate to people who want to call me out as long as they're hiding in their mom's basement. Uh oh. Well, yeah. I know the type. <laughs> Let's leave it right there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and uh, we we didn't get the poll. Do I make you nervous being on the show again? I love that you're on the show again. <laughs> I love that you're on the show. Bring it on. I'm just keeping it. You know, I'm trying to keep you from getting a lot of hate mail. See? Yeah, thank you. but it's it's a completely lost cause. So don't worry. <laughs> You need to start another mailbox that just, you know, if you don't like Scott, just email here, you know, and just split the audience. No, I just I just say that my name's Alex Lindsay now. There you go. There you go. <laughs> now, now they can no longer friend you on Facebook and send you nasty grams through Facebook. Whenever I get in trouble, like I was pulled over the other day for speeding, the guy said, what's your name? I said, Alex Lindsay. He said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I, I actually did get pulled over. Uh, when I, between 18 and 21, I got pulled over 20 times. 20 <laughs> times. And yeah. you didn't get your license suspended? I only got one ticket. Wow. Wow. What'd you do? Bat your eyelashes? What'd you <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, it, it, it's, all about, it's all about understanding that you're not the one in control. They are. And, uh, and just talking nice. Wow. He distracted him with his light scribe pen. <laughs> yeah, I was like, check this out. And I'm recording everything. It's really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Officer? All right, uh, real quick, we got to get it moving here. The uh, the last poll we did, we didn't get it up uh, for whatever reasons, but we're going to keep it up there. We're going to get it up now. Um, and, and the topic of the poll was, if you don't do paid photography work now, would you consider it given the opportunity? And the choices were, yes, I'd like to hope I I'd, I'd, I'd hope to make it my career if I could, or yes, but only for selected subjects that I, en- that I enjoy or occasional work. No, I fear it would take the fun out of the hobby I enjoy, or no, I don't feel I have the skill to do this for money. What were you going to say, Scott? I wasn't going to say anything other than, hey, I don't have any skill and I do it for money. So (laughs) (laughs) if you're a good, uh, yeah, or the last choice, if you're a good marketer and you don't have skill, you can still do it. Um, So, what was uh, the. the one topic that I wanted to talk about a little bit before we jump into the guest, and it's sort of the the gist of having this guest on the show, was the idea that a lot of people say that it's not the talent of the photographer that matters, it's the gear that he or she has. So in other words, anybody can take a stellar Annie Leibovitz or Steve Simon type photo if they could afford the seven grand worth of gear that, that those folks are shooting with. Where do you guys fall on that? Do you, or I know there's there's far left and far right, but where Alex, what do you think about that? I you know I I firmly believe that the that it's about the skill and 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 uh, and experience of the photographer. I mean, uh, it doesn't really matter what camera they have behind them. A great photographer will take a great photo. 
<laughs> I mean, it may it may not look the same. It may have a different quality to it if they're shooting with a little mini Polaroid or something like that than it does from a big still camera. But I think that the that the tool is it's great to have good tools. Uh, it, it obviously gives you more um, more that you can do. Um, but someone with a great eye um, is uh, someone with a great eye, and that takes time and uh, it, some talent and some skill and you know all of those things. Uh, to develop that, but I think that they'll pick up anything and shoot a relatively good camera. Scott, Scott? Well, I mean, you know, I've heard this my whole career. I show people pictures from my recent trip to Florida, and they go, wow, you must have a really good camera. And I go, yeah, I got it the same place Shakespeare bought that pin. That's my standard line. But, you know, I, I... a bunch of people will jump in and say, yeah, but gear does have some influence, and it does. But one of the more popular pictures I made on this recent trip was of a brown pelican coming in for a landing. I nailed it. You can see his feet on the water. It's tack sharp throughout. I made it with the D90. It's like a $900 camera. You don't have to have the top gear if you know what you're doing. It does help. I'll say that a million times if it makes everybody happy. It helps, but it's certainly not required. And, uh, you know, Fred Fred and I are working on a little thing. We're going to do at Macworld next year to kind of help teach that. But uh, I, I really think that if you give the right photographer any camera in almost any situation, he'll make something saleable. And if you give the wrong photographer the best camera in most situations, they won't. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the tool. It's not. Well, I, I think my opinion is it's it's a combination of both. You can like you, you're saying, Scott, if you're a great photographer and you're blessed with great gear, you know, and you have all this beautiful stuff, you can do some stellar work. But that same photographer stuck on a desert island with, you know, a, a, a crappy point and shoot is going to do some stellar work because he's still an artist and it's not the paintbrush. You don't you don't look at a, fo- a photograph and say, wow, you know, I wish I had the camera that made that. You think, wow, that was a great f- photograph that was made by that photographer. So People people are falling in love with their iPhones because of the, the lousy quality, if you will, but it also becomes atmospheric. So really, it's about using the tool in a way that, you know, best, that it that it's best used. We were talking just before we went on air. I I was at Nikon today, and I I happened upon uh, Bill Pakela's office. I know Scott knows him. He's kind of a legendary Nikon guy, working with professionals for many many years. And on his wall in his office is this gigantic image of a tack sharp, beautiful eagle, beautiful lighting. And you see at the bottom, it's got his name, and it says Nikon D1. And he says he puts it up there because. The D1, if you can remember, was a 2.74 megapixel camera, and this image was absolutely beautiful. I think he used, he said he used genuine fractals to to upsample it, but I mean a 2.74, under 3 megapixel image shot JPEG, not RAW, um, and it's this amazing, beautiful, beautiful picture. I suspect, you know, if you went really up close to examine, you might see a little uh, pixelation there, but I mean... It, it's it it it's where we are now. I mean, come on. There, there's there's no reason. It, it, all, even the the simplest of, of cameras that are coming out today can do amazing results. So it really isn't. Uh, you know, we can't really fixate on that. Yeah, I think it's an excuse. You know, oh, if my you know I only have this D90. If I had that new 5D Mark II, I could do some real photography. You know, the only I, exception is if I had a D3X. Then. Think- <laughs> Wait, you were just at Nikon. How come you didn't just grab one? Don't they have a D3X tree? I was looking, but they were watching me. <laughs> you should have just you know, went I did, a, I did a test on this, Fred. When I used to teach a wedding uh, class, business of wedding photography class at the Seattle Art Center. And 
one of the first things everybody would ask when they came into the class for the first orientation even, they'd say, what kind of camera should I buy? And mm-hmm. I'd always tell them you shouldn't buy any camera. They were, oh, I got to get gear to do the wedding. I said, no, you got to get a wedding first. Then you can go rent the gear. If you, <laughs> you know. And, and they were like, oh, you know, they kept on wanting the gear. And I kept saying the gear isn't the focus. So finally, we just did a little thing. And I had a wedding booked with a, a bride who had just been very moving to me. She couldn't afford me. So we were going to do it pro bono. And I told her that, you know, we might use this as an opportunity to do some education. She was fine with that. So I picked the two best photographers from the class, gave them my gear. And said, go nuts. I'm going to take your point and shoot, and then we're going to put the, the pictures in a wedding album, and we're going to let the bride choose the ones she likes. We're not going to tell her anything other than just pick the ones you like. Mm-hmm. And she picked 95% of mine and 5% of theirs. I shot the thing with a point and shoot. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's definitely easier with the nice gear, don't get me wrong. But if you've got the vision, you know what you're supposed to do. You can make – I've seen some tremendous pictures, for instance, out of the G9, G10, LX3 crowd. I mean, stuff that just blows my mind. It came off a compact camera. I think if you look back – here's something that's really interesting perspective-wise. Look back on the great photos in Life magazine in the 40s and the 50s. Those were taken with speed graphics that had a flash bulb and one shot. Yeah, but they had huge film with great resolution too. That's true. But I'm just saying there was there was no autofocus, there was no frames per second. There was just like one shot, pull it back out, turn it over, and get your second shot. Now you've exposed your film for the night. Yeah, yeah. And you got the great pictures, you know, of Ali standing there, and and you know Kennedy, and and all these great things. These were made with cameras that didn't even have freaking autofocus. Yeah. Well, that's a that's the segue into the today's guest, and it's Aaron Johnson. He's the no relation. He is the uh, the cartoonist behind the What the Duck series. And Love that guy. what? Yeah, he's awesome. Hey. What prompted the interview was he did this strip on. Uh, it was just a really funny strip about. Uh, this one duck asking another duck, you know, basically making the comment that your camera takes good photos. You know, I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting. So uh, if you have a chance, check out his work or subscribe to his RSS feed. He's at uh, whattheduck.com. And he's all over the place. You can find links to him there and we'll put him in the show notes as well. He's so, even on YouTube as well with animated strips. Yeah, he, he mentioned in the interview that he's starting to do some animations of the strip. So he's all over the place and he's doing some, he's got some interesting stuff planned that he, uh, that he alluded to in the interview. So uh, give it a listen and enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with, here with the creator of the, the incredibly popular and famous comic strip, What the Duck. Aaron Johnson has agreed to sit down and talk with me uh, for a little bit about all things duck. And uh, with that, we're going to jump into it. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, what the duck? So I'm a fan. So I have, I have a bunch of questions from the fan perspective. But I'm, sure. also, I'm also a fan who's a photographer, which I would assume a large percentage of your your viewership is. Yeah, there's a few of them. <laughs> Just a couple. Uh, like Joe McNally and uh, D- David Hobby, all those guys. I've seen, I've seen references to the duck everywhere. Right, right. Yeah. So what's just what's the history behind you as the artist before we get into the duck? You know, how did how did you get into cartooning and and then also what's your background in photography? 
well, by trade and by education, I'm an animator and graphic artist. So my background's in animation, and I went to college uh, for film, film, motion picture film, and uh, I always, you know, was had this concentration for animation. Um, the photography interest only started about five years ago, around the time where my first uh, son was born, and at the time. Uh, you know, I the digital the digital camera thing was you know becoming more prevalent, and I figured out quickly that I can use a digital camera, I can take crappy pictures for lack of a better term, and then use my knowledge in Photoshop to make those pictures halfway decent, and that's where the interest began, and it kind of snowballed from there. Now, many 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 dollars later in equipment, uh, here I am. So. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, many many dollars in equipment and and time and effort and all that, right? Right. And it's all just for taking pictures of my kids. <laughs> Some people would call that a sickness. Uh, I like to prefer hobby. So then that's that's sort of the nexus between the artist and the photographer. So you have this the 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 art skill and the motivation is taking pictures of your kids, and then it sort of came together in the right, strip, right. right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so, it's, it's, so how did you get the, how do you have the, you know, it just seems like you know me. So you know photographers, <laughs> you you know photographers, and you know what makes us tick, you know what what bugs us, and all that seems to come through in the strip. You know, how do you, how do you have that level of knowledge of the, inside the photographer's mind? You know, I'm, just, I'm curious about that. I guess I guess my brain is wired to always kind of imagine what is it like being that person, you know, and just by getting more into more into photography, I quickly could envision myself, you know, what are these guys going through, you know, guys who are doing this as a profession, as a hobby, beginners, and so I guess, like I said, I think I'm just wired to kind of put myself in other people's shoes per se. Yeah. Um, but you know the strip is kind of representative representative of creative professionals in general. So you don't necessarily have to be a photographer to understand it or appreciate it. You know you can be a a writer, web designer, graphic artist, you name it. It's you know cre creative professionals deal with a lot of the th same things on a similar levels. So that's where kind of the the tie-in is. Yeah. So we're all we're all artists at the core, and we just branch out into different ways of expressing it, right? Right. There's there's something very unique about being an artist, but then taking that and applying it to a job, and it's just a very interesting situation. Um, and there's a lot of contradictory things that happen, and a lot of dilemmas uh, yeah. <laughs> across the board. So. You know, Aaron, you you seem to know wedding photographers particularly well. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know some of the some of the strips I've read that are specifically targeted at the wedding photographer. Do you have any inside knowledge on that that group of people? I have never shot a wedding personally, you know, where I was paid to do it. But I've obviously been at weddings, and I'm the guy in the back with the camera snapping away. So again, I can clearly see the situations that uh, you know these professionals would have to put themselves in, and the things you have to deal with. Weddings by nature are just the most unique thing in the world because it's supposed to be the most joyous time in a person's life but yet it's the most stressful and people are angry and mean <laughs> yeah and it's, so it's the i mean irony is the one word to, to sum up most weddings these days um and so there's a lot of humor in that yeah yeah no absolutely all, all the weddings most of the weddings that i've been at uh 
you know, if you if you look at them from the outside, it's definitely humorous. <laughs> so, right, right. So, I always, I've told my wife many times, you know, I'm glad and I hope I only had to do it once because, you know, once <laughs> was enough. It was a great day. Don't get me wrong. You know, loved every second of it. But just, there's just a level of sh- unnecessary stress involved. So yeah. I'm glad it's done with. We're yeah. going on. We're going on 10 years, so. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. That's great. Thanks. So you, you beat all the seven-year statistics. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, okay, so then on to the duck himself. Is is it a yeah. he? It's a he, right? Yeah, you know, it, 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 it is, <laughs> but it's funny that you say that because it was a long time um, before that ever came up, and I think there was a long time where uh, certain people – Obviously, female photographers saw themselves in that character, and for a long time, I think people just put themselves into that character, so it was general neutral for a long time. But he is male, and there are female characters, but one of the things I've always strived for in the strip is to keep it very uh, open to every everyone. So there's not a lot of back history. It's not something you would have. You can jump in at any time and kind of get what's going on. Yeah. And so I don't... You know, there's not a lot of detail. Like the characters don't have names, and um, but obviously he, he's a male, and some of the relationship experiences come through, and yeah, it, it makes for interesting stories. So why why a duck, and why why not a pigeon or a crow or <laughs> something? <laughs> because of the name and the and the the play on words, or why where did where did the duck come from? The the entire concept. Um, from style, style of the artwork to the style of the writing, uh, the concept, the design, everything hit me all at once. It was like one of these strange things where I wor- woke up one morning and it just all came to me at one, you know, like one big ball of fire. It just hit me, and so that was just one of the things. It was going to be this duck, and he was going to be a, a photographer, and uh, I only intended to do five strips as kind of a lark, as a joke, and. Within the first couple of days, there was a huge response from people all over the place, and that was the motivation for me to keep it going. I never had the intent to make this a uh, a long-term thing. Well, how long how long has it been going, the strip? Uh, we're uh, coming on three years in July, so it started in July of '06. Wow, that's great. So so far, so good. It's it's living up to everything you thought in terms of popularity. Yeah, it's great. I mean, one of the reasons why I do it is because people are responding to it, and that's what—that's my motivation. That's what keeps me going. So it makes it fun. So I think there was a time, well, almost every day, where I <laughs> ask myself, okay, how long am I going to be able to keep this going? <laughs> uh, when is the well going to run dry? Uh, you know, so but that's just that's just part of the deal, you know. Now, are you are you coming up with these ideas for this trip? on the fly like one a day or do you have like you know a list of ideas that you're going to pull from and you just go and execute them when you when you sit down at the drawing table oh i really wish there was a rhyme and a reason to it all but when i first started i i kind of did three or four one day and then didn't do anything for a couple days so i kind of work in little batches but after a while i kind of got rid of that process and i try to force myself to write a strip a day and kind of keep it regular and um but there's still days where just you know i'm busy i don't get to it and there's other days where i either have to or just the way things come out you know i might do a couple in a day um but i don't have a list of ideas the the process is 
I don't know if you'd call it organic or not, but it's kind of one of those things where I just have to kind of have to sit down and think, you know, okay, what do I feel like writing about today? Um, I so, don't know. So, so it's basically what you feel like doing and, and whatever at the at the top of your mind and on your mind at the time, you can you can flow that out through the strip, right? Right. I guess it would, you would, uh, the parallels would be drawn to somebody who, like, writes a blog, a blog entry every day. There you go. Yeah. So. Blogging, blogging with art. I like that. Yeah. There you go. So the so just a, a slight non sequitur. So you, I noticed on your website there's a duck, or there there's a stuffed animal duck. Yes, yes. And I I've seen this in other places. I can't remember where I've seen him before. I don't know if it was on David Hobby's site or on the Strobe site or, or or where. What's behind that that guy? Is it just you wanted to give people something tangible to hang on to, or what? For the longest time. Uh, numerous readers have suggested the plush animal. Like, when's the plush character going to come out? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, this two years ago, people were asking about this. And it's something that I toyed around with and I, I kind of wanted to do, but there's a lot of uh, factors involved with making a plush product. I mean, first of all, there's uh, you know, the limited number that you have to start out with is quite large. So there's a lot of logistics as far as storing these things and shipping them out. Yeah. So I finally got that worked out and I took the plunge and did it. Well, it was a lack of foresight. I mean, I sold out of these in less than a week. So now I have a second order coming in, and hopefully in two weeks I'll have them up on the site again. But, yeah, they were uh, a, a terrific hit, and uh, people really responded to them. So that was a good thing. Yeah, and it's I, a good- I'll tell you, I was I was watching um, the, the Strobist DVDs, you know, the, with David Hobby, and right. he, he had one of your T-shirts on. I was like, I didn't know where the T-shirt came from. I was like... That's a cool T-shirt. I want one of those. <laughs> you know? And then for some reason, I happen to be on your site, and there the T-shirt was. <laughs> so how how are those going? I would imagine after he sort of started wearing them around, you probably got a bump in traffic. Oh yeah, I mean that particular shirt has always done well, and you know David for uh, sporting one in his DVD. It, it yeah, it was great. I'm very thankful for him. And, uh, but you know, this funny thing about the merchandise is there's this mentality amongst a lot of people that, you know, the only way to make money on the web is to sell t-shirts and sell stuff like that. Yeah. That, and that was not in, in the forefront of my thinking. Again, it was kind of meeting a need, Uh, you know, again, within days when the strips started, uh, people were asking for t-shirts of the character. So, you know, I kind of got my stuff together and set up a storefront and did that kind of thing. And it really was to meet the need of readers who wanted to sport a shirt with these characters on. And then it, it just took off from there. The, the merchandise has been very successful, and I'm grateful for it. It Obviously, it helps pay the bills and keep the site up and running and that kind of stuff. And it's fun to do. It's, it's neat to have these ideas that I would like to see on a T-shirt. And now I can create them and put it up there, and people are responding responding to it so so that that's a good segue into my next question for you so self-publishing you know whether it's creating plush you know stuffed animal toys or t-shirts or the strip online you know how what's your view from somebody who's in it and successful at it what's your view in terms of how that world of being able to self-publish and do it anytime you want at a whim versus the old school way of going through a publisher or manufacturer or whatever to get your product or creative work out. You know, what what are the pluses and minuses from your perspective? Well, the pluses are, you know, in theory, anybody can just start doing this stuff now. 
10, 20 years ago, there was a series of steps and procedures one must follow in order to be published or seen. The Internet's kind of thrown open the doors for that kind of stuff, both good and bad. Obviously, you have to weed through a lot of junk to find valuable things on the Internet. And everything's subjective. I mean, some of that junk is very profitable and people respond to it. Hey, who knows? My strip might fall into that junk category. But that being said, it totally opens a lot of doors. And it's interesting that you mentioned self-publishing or publishing because I think it was only a few months into doing the strip that I was approached by two competing magazines who wanted to run the strip. Mm. And that totally surprised me because, again, when I started the strip, you know, it was kind of on a whim, never intended to go very far. And then to all of a sudden have actual print magazine publishers approach me, all of a sudden I started having to rethink what I was doing. It's like, wow, maybe there is other avenues for this. People are obviously responding to it. And so I got into the self-syndication, specifically for magazines, early on in the game. Um, So, you know, the website was always doing its thing and uh, Monday through Friday strips and all that. But also, on the same time, kind of behind the scenes, I was, uh, you know, taking care of uh, self-syndication for magazines that were interested in it. Now, define that, just, you know, because I, for one, am not familiar with self-syndication. What does that mean? Well, self-syndication just means that, you know, basically magazines have approached me uh, wanting to use the strip. I say, fine, you know, here's here's a price. Uh, You're welcome to choose any of the strips from the archive. I I email you the high-res art, you know, the print res versions, and everybody's happy. Um, On top of that now, the strip has been picked up for uh, syndication from a national newspaper syndicate, Universal Press Syndicate. So now the strip is running in newspapers, and... Uh, the brains behind that is Universal Press Syndicate, the same company that distributes Garfield. They had distributed, uh, you know, Farside, Calvin Hobbes, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So now it's now it's in newsprint, and Universal Press Syndicate they're responsible for going out and selling it to newspapers and taking it down that avenue. But so self syndication just means that I was handling and still handle the magazine stuff and and the things that I had going before I signed this contract for newspaper syndication. So now I I have a, a foot firmly on both sides, you know, the print and the web and you know everything in between, I guess. Okay, so then that that's that I'm curious about that. So one of the questions that I that I wanted to ask you was your thoughts on just newspaper cuz you know from my perspective, my first exposure, and a lot of people, I would imagine, uh, first exposure to comic strips was through newspapers, right? You look in the newspaper right, and right. then, you know, throw everything else away and, you <laughs> you know, and on Sunday it's in color, you know. Right, so, exactly. Right. So, so that form of publishing and that reach compared to being heavy on the web, which is, which is better? Oh, I don't know if I'd rule anyone better than the other. There's advantages to each. First of all, the advantages for the internet web thing is I am my own boss. I'm my own editor. You know, for better or for worse, I'm responsible for making the decisions I make, and you know, and I have to hope that people respond to it. Blah blah blah. So it gives me a a sense of freedom. Uh, On the other hand. There's still some kind of legitimacy to newspaper publication, and so maybe it's a um, a demographic thing, an age thing, but 
uh, all of a sudden, like now that I'm in newspapers for a certain population or for certain people, all of a sudden now I'm legitimate. Yeah. Even if I even if I was read by you know millions of people prior to that, it didn't matter. You weren't in the newspaper. Now that I'm alongside of Garfield and whatever you name it, now it adds another level of legitimacy. I none of that really factored into my decision. For me, it was more about I have the strip. I want as many people as possible to be able to have access to it and read it. There's a lot of people who spend all day in front of the computer, whether at, whether they're at home or at work, and and I'm guilty of some of that. But there's also a lot of people who have lives yeah. and are not in front of the computer. And there's are people who read the newspaper and they aren't reading Google News or whatever. So I mean, so I, you know. My goal is to kind of, you know, reach as many people as possible. Sure, it's a, dif- it's a, it's a whole different audience. Well, I don't know if it's a different audience, but it's, you know, I, yeah, demographic wise. Yeah, it's another audience, and demographic right. wise, people who are still tied to newspapers tend to be in the older generation, and people right. that are consume all their media online tend to be in the younger, although getting older generation. So that's right. that that's that's interesting that that legitimacy of being in a some would say an outdated medium which is newspaper you know compared to something right. new like the web has to legitimize somebody who was already successful on a medium like the internet more so than it covering more people than you would in the older medium that's that's really right. interesting yeah it's it you know it was one of those things in the backstory to that is a i never intended to become a cartoonist and I certainly never intended on becoming a syndicate cartoonist. And the whole syndication, in a roundabout way, kind of came to me. Uh, event, you know, at the end of the day, Universal came to me. They said, "Hey, we want to syndicate your strip." Well, it was kind of an honor. It's uh, the odds of becoming a syndicate cartoonist are astronomical in a sense. Like if you look at the numbers of. Uh, artists, cartoonists who are trying to get their stuff into newspapers and those who actually make it. So it was an opportunity that you know I thought about for a long time. But in the end, at the end of the day, for me, it's about getting the, peop- the strip to the people. I'm very uh, thankful and fortunate that people are even looking at my work. And I wouldn't shut a door to uh, potentially new people looking at it. So. No, absolutely. And now speaking of... of- print, you know, and, and things other than online, I, I was looking, researching this interview, and I noticed that you're, uh, you've published a Lulu book of, of the, the What the Duck strip. How's that going? Good. That was, that was my first year's collection, so I self-published that through Lulu. Now I have another book coming out in September, but this one's being published by Andrews McMeal uh, Publishing, and they're known for their comic strip collections. You know, again, the Calvin and Hobbes books, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, this book will be out in September, um, so I'm looking forward to that. And it's going to pick off in the collection where the first book ended. So... Um, it'll be in addition to the first book, but yeah, the first book did really well. Uh, my only regrets about self uh, publication, as far as the book, is this that the end price was probably a little higher than I would have liked. But that's the name of the game with the print on demand stuff. And so with this next book, there will be a significant uh, price difference in a good way, uh, yeah, because it will be through a, a major publisher. Yeah, so it's great. So it'll actually be in Barnes and Noble and and, right, and booksellers right. everywhere, right? Exactly. We hope. Yes. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So then, okay. So 
the Universal Press Syndicate. They're, you're syndicating through them, so they're gonna, you're going to be legitimized through these traditional outlets. You're already successful on the web. You're self-publishing through Lulu, uh, or you self-published the first year through Lulu, and you're now with another publisher, and you're going to be in the brick-and-mortar stores. What's next for, for What the Duck? Well, I'm working on the rock musical. The rock musical. <laughs> That's not an like off- high school musical, is it? <laughs> you know, like an off-Broadway production. Uh, cast of thousands. No, you know, I don't know exactly. You know, I like uh, toying around with different mediums and different ways of getting the ship out there. And one of the things I had started probably a year and a half ago is I actually started animating some of the strips. So once a week, I pick a strip and I do an animated version. Oh, wow. and, you know, and I it's on you know hosted on YouTube and have it available on the website. You know, so there's always you know avenues for television. You name it. Yeah. The, the motion picture, I'm on top of it. So that's that's coming up. We're going to have a uh, – you're going to sign on with Pixar and do a What the Duck? <laughs> well, if, you know, if, if Pixar doesn't pick me up, I'll just make it myself, you know? <laughs> there you go. Well, hopefully somebody from Pixar is listening to this podcast and uh, you'll get I have it. some. I have some friends at Pixar, and, yeah, I hope they are. So are you, so in in terms of just like social media distribution and getting the word out about the strip, are you, uh, are you on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff or or are you just strictly on the website? Yeah, I I did start uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts for the strip as a means to uh, get the news out there. One of the things I noticed in this whole experience is early on when it was just the website there was a lot of traffic to the website but then I offered RSS feeds and uh, widgets and all that kind of stuff so now it's not you know people don't need to come to the website every day which is convenient for them and I totally understand it but when there are news related events or announcements or to keep people in the loop about progress where the strip is going etc etc it's hard to reach everybody these days. So it's kind of forced me to do a Facebook and a Twitter thing. And really it's just to like keep on getting the word out there. Um, you know, people are reading the strip every day or, you know, or they batch them up and read them all in a week and on a weekend or something. Yeah. And that's, and that's great. But you know, like for example, with the plush toys, you know, obviously people wanted to know about that and I, I need to have different avenues to get that information out there. So yeah, there's a, there is a Facebook. There's also a Facebook uh, fan page, um, which my cousin on the East Coast has been gracious to kind of like set it up and get it going. And yeah, uh, there's like thousands of fans, and that's super. And I'm flattered. That's great. Yeah. So we'll we'll definitely link to that stuff in the in the show notes for this for this podcast. What right. about what about requests? Do you do you take requests from your from your fans on topics for different strips? Well, let me guess. You have an idea about a guy who has a podcast. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get lots of those. Um, I welcome, you know, I, I get a fair amount of uh, reader suggestions or ideas and strips. I love that. And there's no way I would turn away ideas. When you got to crank out a strip a day, you quickly uh, don't become picky and choosy. <laughs> Yeah. You take anything. Um, yeah, so you know, I solicit ideas. I can't always guarantee that it's going to lead to something, you know, specifically to their idea, but it often gets my brain going in a bizarre direction and it leads to something else. So. You know, I don't, I, Aaron, I don't necessarily need to be the topic of a strip, but I need to have a walk on role in one. There, <laughs> <laughs> at least one panel, you know, <laughs> with me in there. 
Not a problem. That would be the plan. So, what about other characters? Uh, do you have any other characters in the, in in the uh, in the plans? Well, the, over the two and a half years, whatever, almost three years, there's usually there's been about four reoccurring characters. I guess if you if you wanted to call it a cast, you know, there's there's the main doc. He's white. There's his uh, his spy versus spy enemy duck. Was the, the black <laughs> duck, you know? And they're always at each other, and um, and then there's a, a an assistant duck. He's a smaller duck, and then there's the intern duck, and he's got like this aborigine feel to him, um, and those are kind of like the four reoccurring characters. But there's a lot of uh, characters. I like to just create bizarre characters that kind of show up for a couple of days and then disappear. Uh, one of the example I can think of is I I created uh, two characters called the Photoshop Police, oh, really? and it was their job to like uh, stop Photoshop crimes, and uh, <laughs> that went over very well. But it's fun to introduce these kind of bizarre walk-ons and then have them disappear for a while, and maybe they will return again. So we'll see. That's awesome. I want to. I need to go look up the Photoshop Police. I want to see those guys. There you go. <laughs> Well, cool. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to to chat with me. This has been great. Thanks for having me. All right. So so where would you like people to contact you? Do you just want them to go straight to the whattheduck.com or follow you on the Twitter site or Twitter page or where? Yeah. Uh, if you go to whattheduck.com or .net, uh, there's a link there to sign up for a mailing list. So that's a, a great way to keep you direct in the, in the loop. Um, I do try to uh, keep people abreast on the Twitter account and the Facebook thing, and I believe those links are also on the site. So the site's kind of a good place to start and you know find all these things. But. All right. Well, that's great. Well, on behalf of photographers everywhere, I want to thank you for putting this strip out and keep it going because uh, if you stop, there may be rioting. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> thanks much. All right, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. So uh, that was Aaron Johnson of What the Duck. If you want to learn more about Aaron, just check the show notes and click on over, subscribe to the strip, and start following the duck. Coming up next week on This Week in Photography, we're going to have the uh, a, a really popular photographer. He goes by the name of Gene Higa. That's actually his real name. Uh, Gene Higa. And he uh, he's a San Francisco-based international destination wedding photographer. He was voted as one of the top 10 photographers, wedding photographers, I believe, in the world uh, in 2008. So he's, uh, he's got a lot to say about how he markets himself, how he built his brand, and where he's taking things from, uh, from, the, from the brand perspective. He's, he mentioned that he's actually rebranding his company. So uh, that's coming up next week on This Week in Photography. And I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, Before we go, Fred, can I do something? Scott Bourne, I was going to toss it to you because you are you are the the guest host now. What do you got? I I, I just want to give away a Drobo. What? I just want to give away. What? A Drobo. That's why we call him Scotty Woodbuck. I'll take it. <laughs> He's God. out there giving away Drobos. People are walking down the street and uh, you know in in Seattle and uh, in, in in Gig Harbor. If you're in Gig Harbor, you just walk around. If you see Scott, it's kind of like a leprechaun. <laughs> Follow him to you, a pile find, of Drobos. Find Scott. No, you'll you'll get a Drobo. If you just you just got to touch him. You just got to run. I was off. walking. I was walking down the street today, and a Drobo sort of fell off my Drobo vest. I thought, <laughs> Wait, Scott, how are you going to give this thing away? I'm, I'm, I'm going to give. A, I'm going to give away a brand new second generation Drobo. That's the one with all the FireWire 800 and cool stuff in a box, never opened. 
brand spanking new, and here's all you got to do to get it. Um, a lot of our audience listens to uh, you know TWIP, and they also listen to Mac Break Weekly. Do a mashup of either show or both with the Oscars. Use the stills or the video on YouTube or anything you want. Be creative. You got like three days, four days at tops. I want to see something next week. And the one I like the best, and by the way, it will be completely arbitrary and capricious in my choice. But nevertheless, <laughs> I'll just give you I'll just give you a drobo. Nice. Now are you gonna now, this is this you... is good to you have to be eighteen and you have to live in a country where Drobo ships. Go to data robotics or drobo.com to find out if the country you live in is able to receive a Drobo because there are all kinds of laws when you get to computers and stuff. There are some countries you can't ship computers to, etc. Yeah. So if you live well, in Canada, 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 I think is eligible for this one. Ooh, wow! Nice. Did I I'm just going to, there, there's no strings. I'm just going to give you the the Drobo. So that's the deal. Where can uh, I know for the people that are that kind of blew through that? Are you going to have a blog post up on TwipPhoto.com about this? I, you know, we've got one on scottborn.com. We'll add one on Twip Photo today, and uh, I'm assuming that uh, Aaron will put something in the show notes. So there'll be two or three ways to read about it. It's not a big deal, though. All you got to do is get creative, some kind of mashup, do something funny, make me laugh. I'll just give you a drobo. I just got, I just got them sitting around. Wow. All right. You heard it here first. So there's two firsts from Scott Bourne, mydigitallife.com, and Scott's giving away a drobo. It's mydl.me is the actual URL. mydl.me. Yeah, My Digital Life is the show and the blog, but mydl.me. And by the way, we're probably going to give away a Drobo there too, just so you know. Wow. Wow. They're coming coming from the sky. Well, what happened is I just follow Alex around, and when he leaves his on the plane, I pick it up and give it away. (laughs) (laughs) I've only lost three Drobos that way. (laughs) Just because they were in my jacket. That's you know, I left my jacket, and they were in the pocket, and it's you know, it's a big pocket. I know it's hard to miss, but you know, it was a dark, it's it's a dark plane. case. Alex, you're never gonna live that that leaving stuff away, leaving stuff behind thing. You know, never... I've only left it in one plane, and there's only been one Southwest employee that's really like you know jamming away on it. But uh, yeah, I'm never gonna live it down. <laughs> Steve Simon, where can people uh, find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, Twitter slash Steve Simon. Did you hear that? Twitter slash Steve Simon. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a mad Twitterer, and that's why I keep up with all you guys. I mean, I don't really, we don't, we don't really have to talk because we know, because we're reading each other's uh, Twitter thoughts. And also, my website is going to be updated by the time this show uh, goes to air, stevesimonphoto.com. So hey, well, you're going to actually finally do an update to your website? I am. It's time. It's time. So uh, it's going to be a little bit more robust, a few more features on there. Uh, I'm I think excited. I'll be, off- I'll be offering uh, some... Limited edition prints, I think, on it. And uh, are, you giving, are you giving away free Drobos? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I'm working on that. No, not just yet, but someday. Cool. All right, Alex Lindsay, where can people find you? I'm on the Twitter. On the, wait, now it's singular. It's the Twitter. Well, it's the Twitters. It's, oh, it's the Twitters. Kind of like, yeah. <laughs> there's more than one. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I tell you, there really is more than one. There's the one that we're on, and then there's the one that Twitter has created with all their little recommendations, with the people with like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand followers. Oh, we're we're yeah. in the slums now. I, I don't know anything about that one. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 it's evidently, uh, yeah. You just have to be in the right place at the right time. Excellent. So uh, I'm in the little Twitters, not yeah. the big Twitters anymore. Well, so, if, you're, if you're in the little Twitters, what am I? I'm in. The- <laughs> I'm in the microscopic Twitters. <laughs> that's so, sad. Anyway, so anyway, that's, that's sad. Uh, Aaron, where can where can people follow you? 
Um, well, certainly on the Twitters as well is uh, Half Press, H A L F P R S S, and uh, on my blog, which is also halfpress.com. Excellent. And if you're looking for me, you can find, find me also on Twitter, singular, uh, at Frederick Van, or on my blog at frederickvan.com slash blog. And I think that's it for this episode of This Week in Photography. Thanks for listening, and it's time to take that lens cap off. <laughs>